If you own a vehicle with less than 200,000 miles and have an auto warranty about to expire or no warranty coverage at all, listen up. CarShield has a low-cost, month-to-month vehicle protection plan that covers more parts than ever. Visit carshield.com audio to find out how you could pay almost nothing for covered auto repairs. Drivers who activate this vehicle protection today will also receive free roadside assistance, free towing, and car rental options at no additional cost. Get your free quote today at carshield.com audio. That's carshield.com audio. One more effort, said the commander, and we have it. They said it in March, in April. They said it in May and June, and until the middle of July. And then they said it no more. Arnold Zweig, Education Before Verdun. Hello, and welcome to the Battle of Verdun podcast, episode 11, Little Willie's Last Thrust. I just said that with a straight face. Real quick, I want to say thanks to new likes on the Facebook page from the 81st Infantry Regiment Reenactment Group, 1st Corhessian, Oliver, great photos on your page. And the Historical T Verdun Shirt Company, based in Verdun, France. Just think, polos with embroidered World War I helmets and propaganda posters printed on the back. I am so there. Okay. On the 1st of July, 1916, a brilliant summer morning, 14 British five French infantry divisions launched the long-awaited offensive on the River Somme. After a solid week of a massive artillery bombardment, nearly 100,000 Tommies left their trenches in the early morning and advanced in perfect ranks towards the German line a few hundred yards away. Their morale and enthusiasm were high. These were, for the most part, the untested, and poorly trained men of Kitchener's new army and were those who had answered the call to enlist. Morale and enthusiasm, though, could not overcome barbed wire that had not been destroyed in the preceding bombardment. Nor could it overcome the German machine gun teams that had survived in incredibly deep dugouts and who now came rushing out to mow them down. What followed was an unprecedented slaughter. Wave after wave of British infantry moved forward to be cut down by German machine guns and artillery. As the day progressed, the Germans began to bring down their own artillery on the British front line, catching follow-on troops and survivors staggering back. Half the British attack front made no gains. The other half managed to grind forward one or two kilometers. At the end of the day, over 57,000 men 
would be casualties, with over 19,000 killed outright. It remains the single worst day in British military history. The French attacked on the Somme that day as well. North of the river, where their trenches met those of the Brits, they inched forward a kilometer along with their allies. South of the river, where the terrain was flatter, General Ferdinand Foch's old 20th Corps, now reconstituted after its mauling at Verdun, surged forward. South of the Somme, the French 6th Army could better put to use lessons the French had learned at great cost on both banks of the Meuse. Really heavy artillery consisting of 240mm mortars and 400mm guns had destroyed the German trench lines as well as the dugouts underneath them. When the bombardment shifted to the enemy's second and third lines of defense, the Poilus advanced across no man's land in small, spaced out groups, shooting, moving, and covering each other. The French, too, were now using Sturmtruppen tactics as well, and in some areas they advanced as much as 10 kilometers on that first day of July. The Battle of the Somme was on. With that, General von Falkenhayn informed 5th Army at Verdun that all large-scale operations were to stop immediately. In his infuriatingly characteristic way, though, he also said that 5th Army was to continue maintaining a, quote-unquote, an aggressive defense. So stop attacking, but keep attacking. What constituted an aggressive defense? Division-sized attacks? Wouldn't that also be a large-scale operation? Hell, a lot of planning went into a battalion-sized operation. Wasn't that large-scale? Von Falkenhayn left the waters muddy, as usual. But the aggressive defense clause in the orders gave General Schmidt von Knobelsdorf, chief of staff of 5th Army, the cover he needed to press yet another attack on the right bank. On June 23rd, they had thrown 30,000 front kempfers at the French and stretched their lines to the max. The French had thrown everything they had to plug the holes and had held the line. But von Knobelsdorf wasn't ready to quit. One more attack and he'd get through. He wanted his victory parade. In terms of seniority in the German army, von Knobelsdorf was second only to von Falkenhayn himself. Victory at Verdun would surely mean getting out from babysitting this spoiled brat crown prince and on to bigger and better things. Von Knobelsdorf convinced von Falkenhayn to authorize a new attack at Verdun. Von Falkenhayn agreed, but said 5th Army would have to attack with its own resources, such as they were. And I also need you to transfer some of your heavy artillery to the Somme. So use what you've got after that. Admittedly, the Germans were close to breaking through the French. They had almost made it on June 23rd and 24th. French couldn't have much left in them. One 
more push. But von Knobelsdorf and the other German commanders either didn't appreciate or didn't consider that their previous attacks had pushed their men forward, yes, but always into an ever-constricting front. Once the latest attack had been spent, General Mongin had come at them in their salient around Diamont and Fleury with a maddening vengeance. The French had hardly recovered any ground, but they had left it covered with as many German corpses as French. Mongin was bleeding them out. The momentum of Verdun was bleeding them out. And now the Somme had erupted further up the line, erasing any hope for replacements. The attack, however, had been authorized. The Crown Prince felt helpless to stop it, or he didn't try hard enough. Von Knobelsdorf scraped and scrounged the ranks of 5th Army to come up with 30,000 men for the new push. The note of desperation put into the planning of this attack could be seen in the troops allotted for it. Many were General von Delmenzingen's men, who'd taken significant losses at the Aumont and Fleury and had been in the line ever since then. One of the attacking regiments was already down 1,200 men since June 23rd. And now its surviving troops were being told to get ready for one more go. It was scheduled for the 9th of July. And on the 3rd, the Germans got a promising sign. Just southeast of Fort Vaux, on a ridgetop, lay a concrete redoubt named the Damloop Battery after Damloop Village, just a kilometer east of the fort. A high ground position with good fields of fire, about a hundred poilus there had rained machine gun fire on any German trying to get at Fort Souville from the direction of Fort Vaux. During the night of 2nd July, the Germans hit the Damloop battery with trench mortars, while infantry teams crawled through no man's land to get up close. When the mortars started firing shells with no fuses, making them sound like dud rounds, the Germans were up and swarming over the whole position. Dumloop battery was captured with hardly a shot being fired. French troops there kept their heads down as the duds came in, not knowing it had been a pretty clever trick. The German attack lines were now even more secure with this strong point taken. I, I have to imagine after the capture of Dumloop battery, at least one or two German out there said that, you know, as far as ninja or of us. I mean, it was, it was a smart move. Whatever good feelings came with the success of July 3rd were drowned on the 7th when rain started coming down in sheets. At first, the rain was welcome. The thirst problem was temporarily halted as both Poilu and Frontschweine alike licked the rims of their helmets as rainwater streamed off them or sucked on the ends of their ragged sleeves. The rain continued, though. German troops set to attack sat in their shell holes as they filled with water. They couldn't move. Any movement could call down artillery on your very hole, and the battlefield turned into a nearly impassable mud pit. 
Men who got lost or separated from their buddies drowned. Of course, through the rain, the constant shelling by both sides continued as usual. And now German morale began to flounder in the mud and rotting meat. Von Knobelsdorf attack was delayed until July 10th due to the rain. But that night the guns went off and the French braced themselves for another attack. What was coming with this latest push by the Germans? The French had barely hung on on June 23rd. Would they be able to hold off this attack? Some French commanders wondered about the resiliency left in their exhausted men. How hard would they fight? Would they fight? Or would they succumb to the terrible pressure the mill on the Meuse had put on them? The German artillery came down ferociously, plowing French positions from Thiamont to Passe-Fleury to Fort Souville and the Ouvrage de la Fée south of Fort Vaux. Then came that silence again, and the whistling as more Fosgene shells hit the remaining French artillery. French guns went silent again, to the dismay of the beleaguered poilus on the front line. To those desperate men crouching in their water-filled holes, they could expect no help when the in inevitable attack came now. Rifles, machine guns, pistols, hand grenades, trench knives, shovels, and pickaxes, all were tightened in the hands of the men at the front. In the early morning hours of July 11th, the German bombardment ceased and German infantry rose up and out of their holes. Immediately, a firestorm of French 75mm shells tore into them. Fool me once, shame on you. Try to fool me twice, and I'm getting new protective masks that can withstand Fosgene, tricking you like you got me again, and then waiting for your infantry to attack, at which point I will tear them up in the open. French artillery had weathered this second Fosgene strike just fine, and with remarkable discipline, they acted like they had again been wiped out in order to trick the Germans. And it worked. First waves of German troops went down to the 75mm shells. One German unit took so many losses in the surprise barrage that they simply stayed put. German troops weathered the unexpected French artillery as best they could, and the next waves jumped and bounded over the dead and dying. Desperately determined, they hit the lines of smoking French shell holes. Between Fleury and Fort Souville, General von Delmenzingen's Alpencorps troops wrenched open a 400-meter-wide hole in the French line. The Alpen Division had been upgraded to a corps since June 23rd. The defending Poilus had dropped their weapons and surrendered. Within minutes, Poilus from the same unit were shooting as much at the attacking Germans as they were at the Poilus being led back to enemy lines. Bastards, the remaining Frenchmen must have thought. They didn't even put up a fight. General Mongin immediately threw two battalions forward to fill the hole. These two units lost their way in the moonscape of shell craters and were promptly captured by the Germans. In their defense, no one really knew where the front line was anymore. The hole remained open, 
Mangin must have been apoplectic. Morale was indeed becoming an issue. I mean, you've got Poilus shooting at their own brothers. South of the Damloop Battery, the Germans tore through the French 217th Regiment, taking a battalion's worth of prisoners while shooting up the rest of the unit. Within hours, German troops were within grenade range of the Tavan Tunnel, a light railway tunnel that ran under the hill Fort Tavan sat on. The tunnel was a potential pathway for a German breakthrough. Later in the day, another French regiment would be pushed up and it would push the Germans back from the area. To the east of Tavan, the Ouvrage de la Fée put up the same nasty resistance it had since it came in range of the fighting for Fort Vaux. German troops assaulted La Fée several times, but won nothing but heavy casualties. The Ouvrage had been cited to provide support fire for Forts Vaux and Tavin, and the French troops shut up inside doggedly did their jobs. At the hole between Fauri and Fort Souville, German troops of the 140th Infantry Regiment began to trickle through. They took the crossroads north of Fort Souville. On the French side, there was the well-known anxiety again. The line was again crumbling in places, and the large numbers of men lost as prisoners did not bode well for those who remained in the fight. New attacks could very quickly see those surviving units surrounded and chopped up as the trench lines were pierced. After that, the road to Verdun would be open. On the German side, an order came from higher. Cease all operations immediately. Von Falkenhayn had changed his mind yet again. Too late, though. The troops were already in the fight and could not disengage. On the morning of the 12th, there came a sight that raised German spirits and sunk those of the French. German soldiers were waving German flag from the top of Fort Souville the fort on which Mangin himself had stood nearly two months before as he watched his disastrous attack on Fort Douaumont. It looked like it had been taken. You know, I'm sure the French at this point were like, you know, damn these useless forts. It was like France had built them so the Germans could wind up using them. A lieutenant named Dupuis had arrived inside the ruined Fort Souville on the morning of July 11th, as the German attack had started. He had 60 men with him, all that remained of his company. He was assigned to some sector up ahead, but with the bombardment, he had no chance of making it there. Dupuis surveyed the inside of the fort, which was staffed with a previously wounded lieutenant colonel, territorials, and stragglers. It was just like Fort Vaux, only the commandant was amongst the wounded, and the fort itself was caving in from the artillery. The lieutenant decided to stay where he was, and he took over defense of the fort. Wounded were evacuated out as best they could manage, and the remaining men assigned to the entrances and given fields of fire. The fort was made ready for an attack. And it came the next morning. About 150 Germans advancing cautiously from the northwest, 
with hand grenades and fixed bayonets at the ready. Dupuy let them come close before he had his machine gun to open up on them. Some of the Germans went down, others fell, and about 30 made it onto the roof of the fort. A sergeant waved the German flag as a rallying cry for any friendlies in the area. Lieutenant Dupuy, with a captain, and another lieutenant that had arrived at the fort, launched a counterattack from inside Souville itself. With shells falling everywhere and his machine guns keeping any other Germans at bay, Dupuy and the two other officers went at the Germans by directing rifle fire and grenades at them. French troops maneuvered through the dirt and jagged shards of concrete on Souville's superstructure, firing, pausing, throwing grenades. By mid-morning, the 30 Germans of the 140th Infantry had been killed, taken prisoner, or scattered. These 30 men would be the ones who got the closest to Verdun. The German high watermark had been reached. When the German flag on Souville fell, German officers watching through binoculars knew their attack was effectively over. They had nothing with which to exploit that gap between Fleury and Fort Souville. No more reinforcements would be coming for Fifth Army. Von Knobelsdorf had shot his last bolt. And it was also Fifth Army's. Verdun had not fallen. Verdun would not fall. Later on the 12th, Crown Prince Willem informed von Falkenhayn that they had been unable to break through. He received a reply that he was to henceforth adopt a defensive attitude. General Mongin, on the other side, had no such ideas. When I attack, Le Major de had once told a superior officer, I attack. I attack to the hilt. He began his brutal counterattacks on July 12th, hammering at the overexposed Bosch relentlessly. By the 14th, Mongin's men had gruelingly shifted the front line back to where it was on July 10th. At Verdun, the Germans were finished, and the French were exhausted. But Verdun was not yet finished with either one of them. All right, next time we'll go over what went on during the rest of that summer of 1916, as well as take a look at the political fallout from the Battle of Verdun. We're going to see some old faces fade from our story. Some old faces will begin to fade, and a couple of new ones will appear. As always... Your comments and reviews are greatly appreciated. And I love the likes on the Facebook page. It makes me giddy. Um, iTunes reviews will greatly help the podcast out. Uh, apparently, uh, Apple wants reviews uh, in order to keep podcasts up there. So, if you feel like it, it would be very much appreciated. If you choose to send a review through the PayPal donate button on battleofverdonpodcast.com. That will be greatly appreciated as well. 
Donations will go to maintenance of the podcast and website servers. Any questions or concerns, please send them to battleoverdonepodcast.com or hit me up on the Facebook page. Thanks again, as always. We'll talk to you again soon. Take care.